Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, it's my turn to welcome you, and I do. If you're a guest of ours, we are excited and honored to have you with us. And I'll say, you picked a good day to be here. You really did. Jim Ingram is quoting Lady Gaga. I've got a suit on. There's uh, banners on the stage. You picked a great day to be here. Something's going on, right? Yeah. I want to begin by sharing with you a conversation that I had with uh, my first son, my, my middle child, my firstborn son, a couple years ago, but it's a conversation that I've actually had in some form or fashion with both of my boys over the years. But I remember one Saturday I walked into the den. Uh, my son, Will, is laying on the couch watching television. He's got the remote in one hand. He's got a package of Oreos in the other hand. He's, he's focused on the TV. And I walk in. I say, hey, Will, what's up? Not much. What are you watching? I have no idea. <laughs> what's it about? I can't tell you. <laughs> Who's in it? Hard to say. <laughs> what channel is it? I don't know. How long you been watching it? Pretty long time. <laughs> Will? Buddy? <laughs> you okay? Yeah. I walk into the kitchen where Martha's working. I say, how long has Will been watching television? Pretty long time. I said, because I just had like a five-minute conversation with him, and he didn't listen to me at all. He didn't even know I was there. Martha smiled, walked by, kissed me on the cheek, and said, yeah, I know the feeling. <laughs> I said, have you ever read something, and you get to the end of the page, and you realize, I don't know what I just read. I read the words, but I can't remember what was on that page. Or have you ever had a conversation with someone and they're, they're talking to you and they've been talking to you for quite a while and you realize, I have no idea what this conversation's about. I haven't even been listening to what this person's saying. I guess I should smile and maybe I'm supposed to respond somewhere along the line, but, but you know, he's been talking and I haven't been paying the least bit of attention. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah, you're all thinking about this time every Sunday morning, right? When I get up. You check out. Yeah. Or how about this? And this is even a, a, a little bit more serious. Have you ever driven home from work or from the store? You pull into your driveway and you think to yourself, I don't even know how I got home. I don't even remember driving home. And I was just sort of on autopilot. Did I stop at the red lights? Did I, did I use my turn signal? How did I even get here? I just did what I've always done, and I didn't put any thought into it. You know, when you're driving a car on autopilot, it's a dangerous thing. I'm going to suggest to you this morning, it's just as dangerous when we go through our spiritual walk sort of on autopilot. It's just as insidious. It's just as dangerous. And you can call it a rut. You can call it a habit. You can call it tradition the way we've always done things, and call it your comfort zone. I don't care what you call it, but when you're just going through the motions spiritually, it's a dangerous thing. You know, some of the Bible's strongest warnings, and some of the Bible's harshest language is directed at Christians 
who are on autopilot, who are just going through the motions, who are, Jesus calls, lukewarm. And Jesus says, I won't stand for it. I won't stand for a church that's not on fire for me. Now, the leadership here at Bay Area, we don't want that to happen to us collectively. We don't want that to happen to us individually as well. Uh, We're not here to go through the motions. God deserves more than that. In fact, God demands more than that. And quite frankly, we're meant for more than that. So several months ago, a group of good brothers, who I believe were walking in step with the Spirit, came to the leadership and asked the question, are we on autopilot? Are we coasting spiritually? They asked the question, what's our focus? And our elders listened to their questions. And then our elders began asking themselves questions. I was brought into some of those conversations, and I began asking myself those same questions. What's our focus? Where are we going? Who are, who are we? You know, who does God want us to be, especially? And so this idea of formulating a renewed vision for Bay Area for 2020 and beyond was born. And since the very earliest conversations, the, the thought was always, this can't be a vision for the sake of having a vision. This has to be a vision for the sake of growing the kingdom. So this morning, we've been pointing towards February the 23rd for quite some time now. But this morning, I get to share with you our vision for 2020 and beyond. And I'm going to start by telling you that, that some of this declaration that I'm going to be sharing is going to be a little bit anticlimactic for some of you. And I don't say that apologetically at all. But I say it for one reason, because I've been preaching sermons for the last two months, basically pointed to and focused on her vision. And I also say it might be a little anticlimactic because many of you, and probably most of you, have already been exposed to the information, some of the information that I'm going to share this morning, either in a small group setting or the congregational meeting that we had a, a few weeks ago. And yet I'm convinced that this effort and this process and this direction is going to have a profound effect on the, on, on the family here at Bay Area. Um, I'll tell you why I believe that in just a couple of minutes. But first, let me share the descriptive vision with you, and then I want to talk about what it means to you and me. And the first part of this vision is extremely important. I hope you got a handout when you walked in the door this morning. Um, but the first part of this vision is really important. It's things that we're committed to. It's things that we consider to be non-negotiables when it comes to our, our focus uh, on Jesus. And, and I, don't, I don't want to diminish these in any way. I don't want to lessen the importance of these in any way. But I'll tell you, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about these because I suspect that just about all of us will agree on these non-negotiables. But we do need to keep recalibrating through the reality of these five convictions. And and here are the five foundational truths that we're committed to upholding. There's some passages here you can write down, look up, and I think they're on the handout that you have. But first, we are committed to following the resurrected King Jesus. Jesus is not our advisor. He's not where we go for a second opinion. He's not where we go for a last resort. He is Lord. He is King. A few weeks ago, I spoke at length about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. We are committed to following the resurrected King Jesus. We follow Him in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul prayed in Ephesians 3 that we would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being. He wrote in Romans chapter 8 that the same power that raised Jesus from the grave lives within Christians. What we do, we do to the glory of God the Father. We're guided by the Word. We want to be people who read the Bible and people who do what it says. That'd make a great sermon, right? Too simple. And then finally, we believe that the Great Commission is still our commission to make disciples of all nations. We want to be disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Those are the five foundational truths that we believe are non-negotiable. And again, I'm, I'm going to assume that we, that we can agree on, on those truths. No great revelation here. But everything we believe, everything we do, everything we hope to accomplish uh, kind of flows out of these five foundational truths. And in a lot of ways, that was the easy part of the vision statement. You know, the conversations that we had, we, we, we all pretty much agreed on, on some of those things that were just non-negotiables. The rest of the vision took a little bit longer. And I want to pull the curtain back just a little bit and uh, I'll, uh, give you some context as to how leadership sort of arrived at this day with this statement. It's a tremendous amount of conversation that went on regarding how do we honor these five foundational truths. How do we give them purpose and direction? How do we implement a vision that encourages us and motivates us to be the family that God wants us to be, to be the family that God needs us to be? And I'll tell you, a whole lot of ideas were shared. A whole lot of scripture was read. Sitting around a table, like I said, I was involved in most of these conversations with our eldership. A whole lot of Really good books were read. So many books. (laughs) We talked about what other churches might be doing. Everything was open for discussion. Everything was on the table. But so many of those conversations and those meetings just ended with somebody saying, let's stop right here. Let's just go home and pray about it. Let's let's just stop and pray. Let's come back in a few days and, and see where God might be nudging us. And we just kept coming back to Acts chapter 2, the end of that chapter, verses 42 through 47. I think there were times when we actually tried to talk ourselves out of Acts 2.42. But every time we got back together, we seemed drawn to that passage, like God was sort of nudging us there. I hope by now you're familiar with it, talking about those very first Christians. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We just kept coming back to that passage. What were those first century Christians 
What were those brand new believers in Jesus devoted to? They were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to community. They were devoted to worship. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to the lost. What if we truly decided to devote ourselves to the very things that those very first century Christians devoted themselves to? I've been preaching about that for the last two months. But we knew that we had to get the who before the how. And we knew we had to get the why before the what. And I know that sounds like a Dr. Seuss book. But we had to get the who before the how. We had to get the why before the what. The who and the why, that was what was important. And so a lot of conversation around those two thoughts. And and I'll answer right now, in no uncertain terms, Jesus is the who. Okay, Be sure you understand the who is Jesus. It's not the eldership. It's not the preacher. Jesus is the who. It's not some good book that we've read other than the Bible. Jesus is the who. This King Jesus who mastered life, who conquered death. The beauty of Jesus is what attracts people. Not programs, not events, not services that just turn people into consumers. Jesus has always been attractive. Jesus still attracts people. Jesus is the who. And then why? Why even talk about this? What's the why? Well, the why is because we live in a broken world. The why is because there are people who are dying. There are people who are lost, people who are lost who don't know about Jesus. We've got good news to share. And not only are there lost people right outside our doors... I'm afraid there's some lukewarm people sitting right on our pews. But God loves too much. And Jesus paid too high a price for anyone to miss the grace and the forgiveness that comes through Christ. So we want to be a 242 church. Now, I said a minute ago that I I pulled the curtain back a little bit on on some of those uh, uh, leadership conversations. Let me pull the curtain back a little bit and share with you kind of my journey through this vision process. Because I suspect that maybe some of you are thinking the same thoughts that I began thinking when this whole process began. Maybe you're where I was. I've been in in the middle of it a little bit longer than you have. but, But let me share with you kind of where I came from and came to. At the very beginning of this process, I made a comment to our elders who are sitting on the front row down here. And my comment was, we need to dream dreams so big that only God can pull it off. We need to get beyond what we feel like we can do. We need to go beyond what we might think we're capable of. When we get to the end of this thing, you know, years from now, I'm going to look back and I don't want to say, wow, look what we did. I want to say, wow, look what God did. Amen? Yeah, sounds good, doesn't it? that statement would actually come back to haunt me a little bit. Because once we felt like uh, where God was directing us was to Acts 2.42, once we got really clear on the who, and once we got really clear on the why, we started talking about the what and the how. What's this thing going to look like? How are we going to provide these opportunities? What are we going to have to start doing more of? What are we going to have to start doing less of? What are we going to have to devote ourselves to? What are we going to have to change to become a 242 church? And as ideas were shared, 
And as ideas started to be cemented a little bit and finalized and, and you know, some concrete uh, suggestions and directions were, were being shared, I listened to the things that were being said. I listened to the things that here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to focus on. Here's how we're going to pull this off. And my reaction was, are you guys crazy? Are, are you nuts to think someone will do this? How's that for faith? <laughs> How's that for God? You do it because we can't. But that was my reaction. Wait a minute. You're expecting us in this culture that we live in, you're expecting our church family to do these things. I mean, it's great if we would, and we certainly should, but really? Do you really think that this is something that'll fly, that'll work? Let me tell you what it took for me to kind of come around. There was actually a conversation that I had with my wife during uh, the kind of the early part of these conversations. And Martha asked me a question. And to be honest, I can't remember exactly how she worded the question, but basically she asked, well, what church would you like to be a part of? What church do you want to work in? What church do you want to serve in? What church, what kind of church family do you want to be a part of? And my answer was, I want to be a part of a church family that's devoted to the word. I want to be a part of a church family that's, that's devoted to each other. I want to be around people who know the real me, know the messed up me, not the, not the preacher in a suit, but the messed up me and who still love me. Now, I want to be around people where, where worship is heartfelt, where it's uh, moving. I want to be around people who are known more for their radical love than their perfect doctrine. I want to be around people who love, who care about the hurting and the lost. And I want it to just overflow from, from the hearts of people who are falling more and more in love with Jesus. That's the church I want to be a part of. Kind of like the Acts 2.42 church, right? Could you imagine being a part of that group in the first century? Imagine how exciting that would be. How encouraging that would be. How scary that would be. Can you imagine how messy that would be? But my prayer became, God, do that here. Do it here. And then my prayer became, and let it start with me. Actually, it started with these men sitting on the front row. But I want to say publicly in front of our elders, in front of you, as your preacher, I'm all in. I am all in on this thing. And I hope you are as well. And I hope you weren't expecting us to unveil five or six new programs that we're going to be starting and launching. Because in truth, we're not really launching any programs this isn't about programs. It's about a renewed biblical focus. In fact, what we're really sharing here isn't, what are we going to do? What it really comes down to is, what am I going to do? No, what are they going to do? What's the preacher going to do? What am I going to do? I'm part of this family. How am I going to respond? 
Now, to help us move in the direction of being a 242 church, we, we're encouraging uh, our family here to consider some strategies for personal growth. And these strategies, I'll tell you, this is where I said, ooh, that's going to be a tough sell. When we started coming up with these strategies, that's where I was like, ooh, maybe we ought to pump the brakes a little bit. This is a tough ask. But as we worked through it longer, it's these strategies that I finally came around to admitting, this is what it's going to take. This really is what it's going to take to change a church's culture and our influence and our effectiveness. So let me share those four strategies with you. Uh, the first is we want to get involved with radical hospitality. Say, okay, what does that even mean? What's radical hospitality mean? You know what it means. I mean extreme hospitality. I mean drastic hospitality. We're talking about you inviting people into your home. Wait, what? No, no, oh no. Not going to do that. Do you know the word hospitality and hospital come from the same Latin root word? And it makes sense because they both point to the same thing, healing. When you open your doors to someone, when you invite someone into your home, you know, the loud message that you are sending is, you matter to me, and you matter to God. People that come and sit around your table, those are people that matter to you, right? That 242 church in Acts, they broke bread together, they ate together. It sounds like they did it every day. Now, what if we were to stop thinking about our homes as our castle, our domain? What if we just began thinking of our homes as a kingdom outpost? What if we just said, God, you know, it's yours anyway. You use it however you can. Let me use my home for kingdom purposes, any way that I can. Say, well, I don't want to do that. Why not? Some of you might be thinking, because my home's too nice. <laughs> I don't want a bunch of Christians traipsing through here. <laughs> but I suspect most of you are thinking, uh, my home is very seldom uh, company ready. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, my home's not that nice. I don't know. Trust me, nobody cares. And you don't care either when you go to someone else's home because it's an honoring thing to be invited into someone's home. You know, if you invite me into your home, you're making a statement about our relationship and where you want that relationship to be. You know, your hospitality could be someone's hospital. So we want to start using our homes for God. Strategy number two, and that is group, fellowship, uh, group learning and fellowship. Can I share a secret with you? <clears throat> Sitting in a church service for an hour a week, maybe even going to class for 45 minutes a week, doesn't really constitute being an active member of the church. Now, church is neither a building nor an event. It's a gathering of Jesus' followers. And yeah, what we do on Sundays is very important. We're, we're commanded to do it. But if that's all we do, we've missed it. You know, maybe these uh, learning and fellowship things happen in, in a home on a Monday night. Maybe it's here at the building on a Thursday night. Maybe it's at a restaurant. Or maybe it's a, a Tuesday ladies' class, a discovery Bible study, a devotional, a prayer night. We want to encourage you to find a place where big church becomes small. And we're doing some work and, and some progress is, is really being made on opportunities for that to happen. 
Are we completely there yet? No, not quite, but we're getting closer. Because a lot of these things just happen organically. As God moves me and God moves you to, to start thinking in these directions. But we want to be focused on group learning and fellowship. Um, meeting together and praising God. And then strategy number three is discipleship growing groups. These are gender-specific groups, smaller groups. Three or four brothers or three or four sisters getting together. To study together. Praise God together, to have fun together. You might think of these groups as really small groups on steroids. But I, I would say, ask Peter, James, and John how effective a small disciple, discipling group focused on Jesus really can be. Now, I'm not going to go into great detail on these groups because um, you're going to hear about it as they go along. In the coming weeks and months, you're going to start to see these groups in action. Several groups are already formed, already meeting, already functioning, and you're going to be seeing and hearing more about that in the coming weeks and months. Uh, the fourth strategy is community outreach. This includes serving the hurting. This includes reaching out to the lost. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. We're not part of some closed group with a secret handshake. Our doors are wide open. Our hearts need to be wide open as well. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We have been discipled to disciple. And we have been saved to introduce other people to Jesus and to bring the lost to Jesus. That 242 church in Acts, they were taking care of each other. They had all things in common. That 242 church in Acts, they were focused on the lost. God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, are we going to need some training for all of this? Are we going to need some instruction, some encouragement? Absolutely. And a lot of that has been going on for longer than you realize. Training is already taking place. Work is being done. I know God's farther down this road than we are, but, but we're trying to catch up. A lot of work, too, I'll say this, a lot of work that we're already doing in the vineyard falls under this 242 model. But we need to keep watering and tilling and pruning uh, those efforts. We want to get better at what we do well. Kind of keeping with the vineyard metaphor here, some of these efforts that we're talking about, they're, they're just in the early growth stage. You know, just young shoots. But we want to do everything we can uh, to allow God to work through us and, and do what only He can do to help those efforts grow as well. And then in some instances, we're just planting seeds. And we're going to count on God to give the increase. And I say all that because I know some of you are wired in a way to say, just give me the bottom line. Just, just like put the last sentence in bold and let me read it. You know, what's it going to look like? How's it going to play out? What are the expectations? What's the projection? My answer, I don't know. And I don't say that as a cop-out, and I don't say that to indicate lack of planning. I say that to tell you, I don't know what God's going to do with this. I don't know what God's going to do with us. I don't know how bought in you're going to be. But I do know this, I'm not going to put some kind of human limitations on, on God's ability to work His, his mission. 
And I'm not going to put human expectations on the power of the Holy Spirit. But I do know this. As I read the Bible and I see the value that God has placed on the church to uh, accomplish His mission, as I read about the promises that God has made, that He'll equip us with power far beyond ourselves to accomplish that work, I can't help but feel that that church in Acts 2.42 was a lot closer to the heart of God's image of a church than, than maybe we are. See, I don't think it was ever God's intention for the church to meet for an hour or two once a week and, and then go home and come back and, and do it again another week. Again, I, I think we're meant for more. I think the church was meant to be more. But it's going to take a commitment. And it's going to take time. And it's going to take willingness to get out of our comfort zone. And maybe most of all, it's going to take a whole lot of love. We're going to have to love better. <laughs> it's going to take a whole lot of patience. It's going to take a determination to get back to the Bible and let God guide us as, as, as we build from, from the ground up. So let me close this thing by asking you some questions. And they're, they're open-ended questions, and they're some of the same questions, I'll tell you, that, that our leadership sort of wrestled with through this process. And I worded the questions, what if we... But I want you to think, what if I? I just want you to think about some of these questions. Take them personally. What if we took Paul's metaphor of a body seriously? What if we realized that we are as interconnected as limbs and torso, that we feel each other's pain, that we can't fully function without each part contributing? What if we took the one another commands to love one another, serve one another, submit to one another? What if we took those one another commands as seriously as we took thou shalt not commands? What if we assume the very serious task of being responsible for the spiritual well-being of the people in our church family? That's what Galatians 6, Hebrews 3 tells us. What if we dropped the perfect facade and got to know each other just beyond the, hey, how you doing? Good, you? What if we really got to know each other? What if we lived our lives like we are dependent on the constant prayers of our church family? And they're dependent on ours as well. What if we believed in the power of God to accomplish His purposes? We say we do. What if we lived like we believed in the power of God to accomplish what He once accomplished? What if we lived with the understanding that our homes, our time, our resources all belong to God for His purposes? And we've signed our lives over as a living and holy sacrifices. What if we took seriously the command, and it's a command, to be hospitable? What if we as a church, what if we made evangelism a team effort of living and loving biblical community and bringing people into that rather than something that we have to somehow manage on our own? What if we measured success by how many people we equip and send rather than by how many people we attract? What if we were to spend less time talking about the evils of the world and more time reaching out to the world in love? 
What if Sunday was less of a time to come worship and be done, not go over time, and more of a weekly family reunion around our Lord's table? What if we really did love each other in the same radical, sacrificial manner that Jesus loves the church and treated each other accordingly? What if we grasped that merely getting along when we're in the building together and being friendly to visitors doesn't necessarily make a loving church, not in the way Jesus intended What if we believed Jesus when he said that our loving unity would be our witness to the world and our loving unity would cause people to believe in him? That's what he prayed in John 17. How would Bay Area be different if we made an all-out effort to restore Acts 2, 42 through 47 brand of church fellowship, hospitality, and love? Those are the kinds of questions that for the last several months our leadership has been talking about, asking each other. But again, the question is not, what are the elders going to do? And the question isn't, what are the deacons going to do? Or what's the preacher going to do? What's the youth minister, the children's minister? What are they going to do? The question is, what am I going to do? Am I willing to devote myself to the same things that those early Christians devoted themselves to? Because when they were devoted to those things, read the, read the rest, next couple chapters in Acts, that church exploded because they were reaching out to each other and they were reaching out to the lost. And as I said before, it was awesome. It's what Acts 2 says. They were filled with awe. It was awesome. It's the kind of church I want to be a part of. And I'm going to have to make some changes to do that. We're going to have to make some changes to get there to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. To be devoted to those things. Are you in? Are you willing to be devoted to those same things? That's our vision. I'm excited to see what God is going to do with it. Listen, we've got a song that we're going to use as a song of encouragement this morning. Uh, if we can help you in any way, meet us at the front of the auditorium. Let's stand and sing.